Friends, you talk about a mouth. He's talking about a man who can capture audiences by the things that he says. He will be so convincing, he'll call up, down, down, up, black, white, white, black, and you'll believe it. If you're here, I hope you won't be. I mean, in one word, if you want to describe the Antichrist, he has a big mouth. I mean, he's a big boaster. That's what he is about. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're continuing our message entitled, God's Panorama of Future Events in which we see from Daniel chapter 7, a vision Daniel receives of four beasts. We saw yesterday that the first beast, reminiscent of a lion, was indicative of Babylon. As we pick up today, Dr. Brogy begins reading from verse 5 and looks at the bear-like beast, that is, Medo-Persia. Notice, and behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Now, this is not the Russian bear. Some guy on TV I saw a few months ago, and he, uh, he says, Oh, yeah, the lion, that's Great Britain, and the bear, that's Russian. This is happening in our day. And what an abuse of prophecy. And what a distortion of Scripture. God makes it clear who these kingdoms are. You can't lay contemporary idioms on them. Medo-Persia is pictured as a bear. And what a fitting symbol because a bear is an animal of great strength. And this nation was fierce in its ability to fight. Put in the margin next to this, Isaiah 13, 17 through 18. Isaiah 13, let me read it to you. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. They were a fierce people, like a bear, no compassion whatsoever. They were hard on their victims, even the kids they slaughtered, and they had no pity on the pregnant women. And according to verse 5, this bear is pictured as raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth. And again, this is a lopsided picture of the Medes and the Persians. Now, we just read a prophecy from Isaiah that he wrote 150 years before it ever happened. He speaks of this nation, describes it vividly. He will also speak of another coming king, Cyrus, ever before he's even born. And he not only speaks of the king, he names the king. Cyrus is named ever before he's born. This is why the critics hate the Bible, because it is so precise. And so here's this bear. It's in a lopsided kingdom, so to speak. The Persians were stronger and greater than the Medes. But to come into power, they have to overthrow three nations. History records it. The Bible prophesied it, Lydia, Egypt, and ultimately Babylon. Now remember, this prophecy was given in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. At this time, Medo-Persia is no threat whatsoever. They're still a very weak nation, but in the next decade, they are going to grow. But God writes of it ever before it happens. And so God looks through the telescope of prophecy, and he says, Babylonian is, Babylonia is going down, and the Medes and the Persians are coming up. Now, this prophecy, as the prophecies that follow, are so incredibly precise that the critics say, that Daniel was not written in the 6th century B.C., but the 2nd century B.C. 
It was written after the fact because they are so incredibly precise, especially when we come to the 11th chapter. It is mind-blowing. Oh, it couldn't have happened before it happened after. Well, number one, they're going against what the Jews have taught for centuries. They have always documented this book as the 6th century B.C. But when we come through 9, 10, and 11, I will show you why that is an impossible position to hold. But lay aside what I think, what Jesus thinks is the most important. And in Matthew, the 24th chapter, the 15th verse, he does not refer to Daniel as the historian, but as Daniel the prophet. Now there's the lion nature of Babylon. There is the bear nature of Medo-Persia. Now there is the leopard nature of Greece the leopard nature of Greece. After this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. This third great empire, this leopard, was pictured by a leopard because of its agility, its speed, and its thirst for blood as a carnivorous animal. And do I have to wonder who this third empire is? No, because Daniel 8.21 and Daniel 11.21 tells me it is Greece. And of course, if you know your history, if you're awake, remember high school history, all right, then you know that Alexander the Great conquered the world at a rate that no one could ever have imagined. And at the age of 29, he sat down and wept because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. He, with swiftness, conquered from Macedonia to Africa all the way to India. And he did it in lightning speed. We will see this leopard pictured all not even touching the ground. It happened so fast. And then this leopard, this beast, has four heads. And if you remember, when he's laying on his deathbed at the age of 33, Alexander, to whom should your kingdom go? And it is given to four of his generals, and Cassander, Lysinicus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. It's amazing, because God writes all of this ever before it even happens. God is giving Daniel this dream. And what Alexander does is not simply because of his military prowess and genius, as most would say. It's because of what God says in this verse, and dominion was given to it. God allowed this man to prosper, and for a very important reason. He has troops of 35,000, and he goes against Medo-Persia that has 300,000 in their army, and he crushes them. Secular historians, again, apply it to his genius. The Bible says it happened because God chose to let it happen, that there was a higher power working behind the scenes because God was setting the stage at this point for the first coming of his son. And then I want you to see in verse 7 the brutal nature of Rome, the brutal nature of Rome. We read after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dread, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So Daniel describes this fourth beast as dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong with large teeth of iron, and furthermore, he said, it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of its feet. Be, with its feet. Here's a picture of it. I don't know how else to describe this beast except as brutal. In fact, Daniel doesn't even try to compare this beast with another animal because there's no animal that he can pick out of God's creation that would be representative of it. 
But while Daniel doesn't try to describe it, John gives us some insight that Daniel doesn't. Put out in the margin next to verse 7, Revelation 13, 2. Revelation 13, 2. There in Revelation 13 and verse 2, the apostle writes, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. We've already met him. And his feet were like those of a bear. We saw him. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. We've discussed him as well. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne in great authority. So this beast is being given power directly by the dragon of old, whom the Revelation and the rest of Scripture identifies as the devil himself. Now, you already know if you were here for Daniel chapter 2 that the fourth beast, of course, is the Roman Empire. And more words are used to describe this fourth beast than any of the previous three. We're told here in verse 7 that this great power devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And that's exactly how history records Rome took over Greece. And unlike the other empires before it that only had a loose confederation of nations, when Rome came in, they came in with total, absolute control. They had a system that you see in the New Testament. When they came in, they enslaved the people. And every person was assigned a Roman citizen. And this was an issue they had to deal with in the first century where a Christian was given some slaves from a conquering people. Or you were conquered and you had a Christian who was your master. And so Paul addresses this. But this is how Rome controlled the world. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. You say, Pastor, I'm afraid to ask what the, hand stand, the horns stand for. Well, you don't have to ask. Just keep reading. Uh, you go down to verse 24, and you see this recurring symbol, and it says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Now, let's ask a question. Did Rome in the early centuries of the first millennium ever divide into ten parts? Of course not, never. Now, here's a picture. Go back. Remember, here's the two uh, visions, one of a statue, one of these four beasts, and they parallel the head all the way down to the feet. Now, remember the ten toes. In Daniel 2, they represent ten nations, ten kings. How many toes were there? Ten. All right. Just want to make sure you're with me. Well, just as there were ten toes in this metallic schedule, in this metallic uh, man, there are ten horns in this beast. And the ten horns correspond with the ten toes, and they represent ten kings. Did Rome ever have ten toes, ten kings, ten horns? In a unified fashion, never, never happened, never happened. Rome was not overthrown, it just fell apart. But if you remember from Daniel 2, he speaks not of five kingdoms, but four. And this fourth kingdom would fall apart, but then it would gather strength at the end of time, and it would ultimately be crushed by the Messiah himself. And so there's a vestige of this fourth kingdom that remains. And there is coming a time in human history where it will come together, ten nations, and those nations will be around. Uh, Listen to these words from Daniel 2, 24. And the days of those kings, those ten toes representing the ten kings, and the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. What does that tell you? This kingdom comes back to life before Jesus comes back. It will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms 
But it, Messiah's kingdom, will endure forever. When will this happen? And the days of those kings. Now, you might want to flip back to Daniel 2 for just a moment. If you remember in Daniel 2, 41 and 42, there was a gap of time just as there is here in Daniel chapter 7. And that's often true in Bible prophecy. Very often in Bible prophecy, in one verse, God will speak of two prophecies with a huge gap of time between the two. And there's a reason for that. Now, I won't go into that today or I'll never finish the sermon. But just put that and channel that on the side. But between Daniel 2.41 and 2.42, there's a gap of time. And that revived Roman Empire described in the 44th verse will come to life. Most of you know that principle in passages like Isaiah 9.6. Bring that up. For a child will be born to us. We read it every Christmas. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, we say in the incarnation, a child will be born to us and that child's name was Mighty God, Jesus himself. God took on our humanity as the prophet said. But when on earth did the governments of this world rest on his shoulders? It hasn't. But it will, the next verse says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The governments of this world have never yet rested on the shoulders of Jesus where he ruled the world with a, a rod of iron, but he will during his millennial reign. And so between Daniel 2, 41 and 42, there's a time gap. And between that gap of time, God will take this fourth kingdom and he will bring it up and there will be 10 kings that will be brought together. It has never happened in Roman history, but it is going to happen. And I believe God is setting the stage for that. And we learn from the book of Revelation that there will be this 10 nation confederation and out of it, from among it, will come the Antichrist himself. In the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation you will see the very last form of human government. And there will be a confederation of ten nations that will come out of the Roman Empire. You say out of the eastern side or the western. We'll come to that. Just hold on to it. But ten nations will come. And from among those ten nations, there will be one that will arise. And from that nation will come this world ruler. Now, we're going to study that. But uh, let me remind you what Daniel 2.43 says. And in that, you saw the iron mixed with common clay, the bottom part of that metallic man. They will combine with one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And so God says that there's going to be a mix of nations or countries, 10 specifically, that will be unified by the seat of men. It's going to be a very important phrase that we're going to discuss as to what that means. And God is going to show that while these nations have a unified strength, they're still not totally mixed together. They're separate, but they're not mixed together. Now, Daniel 2, 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. He is going to come as the stone, the mighty rock, and he's going to crush this confederation of nations. Now, this is just the small 
introductory thoughts to this vision, and we'll dig into the finer points later. So stay with me. Some of it I know doesn't make sense, but if you will stay with me and apply your biblical mind, God will help you. Secondly, there's not only the nature of the nations, I want you to see the advent of the Antichrist. We're just introduced to him here, but we're going to learn so much about the Antichrist in the 8th chapter and especially the 11th chapter. In fact, you may not know it, but more is said about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel than any other book at all of the Bible. Look at verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And it says, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Here we meet the coming Antichrist, and we're just introduced to him today. And if you come back next week, you'll see much more detail. But some of the descriptive passages uh, that are most helpful to us concerning the Antichrist are right here in the book of Daniel. We first learn something about his origin. Think about the origin of Antichrist. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. So out of these ten nations, these ten horns, will come an eleventh horn, a distinct horn, not part of the ten nations, but an eleventh horn, the Bible says, that will come up from among these kings. He will come to the forefront, to the forefront of this ten-nation confederation, and he's going to dominate as a world leader. Secondly, consider the obscurity of the Antichrist, his obscurity. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. In other words, another leader is coming. He's a little horn. Uh, he's, he's small. Uh, in stature initially, he's ignored. Most people aren't much paying much attention to him. He has this insignificant, obscure beginning. But all of a sudden, he rises up. And he comes into a leadership position. And he uproots three kings, three horns, who probably, uh, for whatever reason, don't go along with his program. But he'll explain it to them very simply. And so out of these ten kings, among them will come one king, an eleventh king, who will be this world leader. He's little, he's small at first, but he will become the world leader. There are many names, many titles given to the Antichrist. Most of you know him by the Antichrist. He's called the beast, he's called the little one, the little horn, the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Over 40 different titles are given to him in the Word of God. Notice in addition his observation, the observation of the Antichrist. We read here in verse 8, his horn, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man. Now, he may seem small and insignificant at first, but he's very wise. And if you know the term eyes in Scripture, it's repeatedly used to describe unusual mental acuity. He's clever. He's shrewd. He's knowledgeable. He's going to be able to solve problems that no one else can solve. But of course, if you've read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13, you know he has this ability because Satan himself gives him power. So Little Horn, he starts very obscure, but he has eyes with great power of observation, with satanic power behind him. But in addition to his origin and his obscurity and his observation, Look at his oratory power, the oratory power of the Antichrist. This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Friends, you talk about a mouth. He's talking about a man who can capture audiences by the things that he says. He will be so convincing, he'll call up, down, down, up, 
black, white, white, black, and you'll believe it. If you're here, I hope you won't be. I mean, in one word, if you want to describe the Antichrist, he has a big mouth. I mean, he's a big boaster. That's what he is about. Now, we'll have to leave it here. It's like the continuation of a good movie, to be continued. But we'll pick it up here next week. But let's ask a question. What relevance does this have to us today? Let me leave some enduring principles for us to take. First, we see in this passage the deterioration of human government. When God pictures the kingdoms of this world, He does not picture them in an upward spiral, but in a downward dive. Chapter 2 began with the head of gold, and it ended with feet of iron mixed with clay. We went from gold to silver to brass to iron, and we ended up in the mud. Down, 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 down. The Bible does not teach evolution. The Bible teaches devolution. Man is not on a course of evolution. Man is going downward. Man didn't come from the mud. He's headed to the mud. He didn't spring from the beast. He, we're headed for the beast, for the Antichrist. Why is that important to know? Because it will give you perspective concerning the human governments of this world. Yes, I want to be a good citizen. I want to render to Caesars the things that are Caesars. And I want to support our government however I can. And especially when our government interfaces with moral issues, then as a Christian and certainly as a pastor, I must speak. I will fight against abortion. I will fight against dismantling little babies and selling their parts like a commodity. I will stand against homosexual marriage as being considered normal. But ultimately, as long as I have breath, I want to preach the gospel of Jesus that has the power to change people. And you can spend all of your life being involved in the governments of this world. And there's a place, and God calls some Christians to invest their life in government. But understand, keep perspective, because in the end, it's a dead cause. In the end, God is going to bring all the governments of this world down, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. So put your priorities where God puts it. If He causes you to invest in government, do so, but only with a view towards winning people to Jesus and preaching the gospel. In fact, you should do that in whatever profession of life you're in. Secondly, Another principle that jumps off the page is this. The exactness of fulfilled prophecy in the past tells me how God will fulfill prophecy in the future. I mean, you think about this passage of Scripture. Every single prophecy that he wrote of was literally, actually fulfilled. Not partially, but wholly, completely. When he writes of Rome, Rome is just a little village down on the Tiber River. When he writes of Medio Persia, they're, they're an insignificant group of people. But God fulfilled each of the prophecies exactly as he had foretold them. How will God fulfill the prophecies for the second coming? Exactly as he foretold them. Listen, if I understood that today, then I would want to listen to what God says because the Apostle John will write in his life He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God, the wrath of God abides on him. If I were here today and I was unsure of my eternal destiny, if I was unsure that if I dropped dead in that seat that I would go to heaven, I'd want to fix that before this day was over. And if you will come to Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of all your sin. 
He will put his Holy Spirit in you that will give you a new power, a new heart, a new desire, a new proclivity to do the things of God. And that's where works come in. They are the fruit of a second birth, but they're not how you're born. Again, you must receive Christ. But if you die without Christ, or if he comes back before this day is over, you will spend an eternity wishing that you had humbly bowed to him as Lord. Now, men can mock this book. They can make fun of this book. But everything in this book is going to be fulfilled. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you today for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And you brought some people here today, some because they need to be saved, some who are in the sound of my voice, they're live streaming even in another country of the world, some who are in other campuses, some who are listening on a radio station, and you brought them within the sound of my voice this day because you love them and Christ died for them and you want them to be forgiven. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help some dear person today to recognize that Jesus didn't die for some or most, but all of their sin, took all of the judgment, proved he was able when you raised them from the dead, that if they will call upon him and believe what you promised, that whoever will call will be saved. Help them to come in childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, I am unworthy of heaven. Tell him, my friend, I am unworthy. I don't deserve heaven. And I cannot earn it. But I don't trust myself to save me. I trust you today, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. Say it, mean it, believe it with all your heart. Lord Jesus, save me. Father, when we look at the nations of this world and we look at the atmosphere of the world that we live in, we can easily become disconcerted. But thank you that we are reminded through this passage that you are on your throne that you are orchestrating the events of human history ultimately to bring about the promises that you wrote of. Help us to understand that. Help us to realize that your word teaches that ultimately things will not get better but worse. But Jesus told us not to fear because these things must take place. So help us to rest in you as a sovereign God and to be obedient with the treasure of the gospel that you've entrusted to us May we be quick to share it and ready to speak up for Jesus. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's study entitled God's Panorama of Future Events, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-787. 7478 and requesting program DAN8. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the future through the Daniel chapter 7 passage in a message entitled The Consummation of Time. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Mm-hmm.